How are we? Good to see you guys. My name is Brian, one of the pastors here at the summit. Uh, thanks for being here. I feel like every week in Denver, you have to make like, you have to say no to about 20 good opportunities to be here. And today, the biggest one, number 21, was just staying in bed because it is awful out there. I walked here from my house. And um, thanks so much for being here. Uh, just a quick update, then we'll jump into this. Um, as you've been here for any period of time, our heart as a church is not just to get really big and have as many services as possible, but we want to be part of helping start new churches throughout the city as well. If you heard a few weeks ago, we did something called the Mile High Family of Churches Gathering, where two other churches that we've helped start were there. I just want to give you an update on both of those churches. Thank you for your generosity to make it possible for us to help those churches as well. So Derek with the Oaks Church, who we uh, sent out a couple of weeks ago, they are gathering together weekly now on Sunday nights. They had 65 people last Sunday, which is a lot of people. That's a lot of people um, that early on uh, in the journey. And because of your generosity, we are able to give them $1,000 a month. I sent them a text a couple weeks ago and just said, hey, we're giving you $1,000 a month. This is the easiest fundraising conversation you'll ever have in your entire life. You're welcome. You don't have to respond. You're welcome. So thank you for being generous in that way. And then Corbin and the uh, Heights Church that we planted uh, few years ago, they just went under contract to buy a big church building at the corner of Colfax and York Street. I'm directionally challenged. Right across the street from East High School and the Carla Madison uh, Rec Center that's there as well. So that just happened last Saturday. That is huge. That is, I, I can't really articulate how big of a deal that is. And even was able to text him and said, hey, we want to give you $10,000 for the down payment. So anyways, thank you for being generous so that we can be generous. It doesn't just help us do what we're doing here, but it helps us bless other churches in the city as well. Really appreciate you guys. Um, so yeah, good to be with you guys. It's really good to be here. I was actually not here last weekend. I was in East Tennessee speaking to 700 students from fifth grade to seniors in college. That is a wide, that is a wide age range. And, um, and I spoke to them in East Tennessee. I did six talks in a 24-hour period of time. And then I uh, hopped on a flight to come back here. But you cannot fly directly from East Tennessee to Denver. You have to fly to Charlotte first. So I flew from uh, East Tennessee, it was the Tri-Cities Airport, to try to land in Charlotte. And I, I've shared this many times before. I do not like flying. Um, whenever I share this, somebody who flies a lot comes up and is like, well, actually, it's much safer than a car. I know. Here's my story, okay? So um, <laughs> so we're in this tiny little, little airplane, and we're trying to uh, land in Charlotte, and the wind is so bad, and the turbulence is so bad, and the plane is shaking so bad that we try to land, and the pilot has to pull out of the landing. And he gets on the intercom and is like, as you can tell, it was too turbulent for us to land. We're going to try this again. So he loops around, and he tries to land again. This time we get so low that I'm actually able to text my wife. I know that was against FAA regulations, but I was like, I don't care if I'm going to die. So um, I text, text my wife. I'm like, hey, we're having trouble landing. Love you. Say a prayer. And then like, we go back up out of service. She didn't hear anything for like a half hour. But I, spoiler alert, I survived, okay? I survived. So uh, I don't die at the end of the story. Um, so come up. Uh, so they try to land again. It has to come back up. So twice they, they fail the landing. And then they um, say, we don't have enough fuel to try again. I'm like, okay. Um, and so, so we had to go land in Columbia, South Carolina, landed in Columbia, South Carolina, deplaned. American Airlines very graciously gave us a cab, took a cab from Columbia to Charlotte, hopped on a 1030 flight to Charlotte to Denver, crawled into my bed at two in the morning, six in the morning, my kids knowing that dad was going to be home the next morning, burst through the doors because they do not care how much sleep I've had. They come through and jump on me and kiss, cuddle, all that sort of stuff. And after that, I sit down to write the sermon. You know how I felt getting ready to write the sermon? So excited. 
so excited because this, this, is, this is a great, great passage. I know it seems bizarre when you read it, but it's so exciting. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say, I think what you're seeing here is a pivot point in the entire history of the story of the world. Um, you're seeing an entire transition into like one chapter to another in the story of what it is that God is doing um, in the world. And the heart, I'm going to bring this up here so you can see this. The heart of what we're going to see is the Spirit of God will indwell the people of God to empower them towards the work of the restoration promised by God. Which, if that sentence doesn't make any sense, that's fine. That's why we got another half hour to try to figure out what it means. The Spirit of God indwelling the people of God to empower them towards the work of restoration promised by God. Now, let me give you a little bit of background to hopefully lay the foundation for this sentence to make sense. Um, I would say if you've traveled a lot, what you find are cultures are very different, but you also find that cultures are oddly the, the same. And um, I, what you find is if you study different cultures, in spite of all their differences, most cultures are trying to wrap their minds around four big questions. The first would be one of origin. Where did we come from? We all know we came from somewhere. The second would be what went wrong. All of us have kind of, you know, problem in the world we can recognize, and none of you were like, last week was just too good. That was the biggest inconvenience I had, right? Like, we understand, like, things in the world are not as they should be. Three, how do things get better? Um, that is, kind of, how do we fix this big problem? And four, where are we headed? Are things getting better or worse? Should we be optimistic or pessimistic? Now, I could talk forever on this. Very simply, if you're new to Christianity, the way that we would answer these questions would be this. As when it comes from where did we come from, we'd say that we were created. We were fearfully and wonderfully created by a God who made us in his own image and fashioned us to be in relationship with himself. It's the world that we all universally long for. Now, what went wrong, the fall, that is that our first parents chose to play God rather than allow God to be God over their lives, and consequently, uh, sin entered the world, and the world that was created to exist in harmony uh, devolved into chaos and disorder. That's the world that we experience now. Now, how do things get better? Through the redemption of Jesus Christ, through his life, death, burial, resurrection, the God-man, Jesus, reconciles God and man back to one another, and then the, where are we headed? Restoration. That is that God saves us, not just so that it's like, I say this prayer, and I have to do like religious activities, and hopefully one day when I die, I'll go to the good place as opposed to the bad place. But actually, and you'll see this quite clearly here in this passage, God invites us into the work after we're saved to be sent. He invites us to co-labor alongside him in the work of putting the world back together in the way that it's meant to be. And what's going to happen in the opening of Acts chapter 2 is a significant transition from redemption to restoration. The redemption of Jesus has been finished. He cried that out on the cross. It is finished. And now he is inviting his people into the journey of putting the world back together in the way that it's meant to be, empowered by the Spirit in the process. So we're going to go ahead and dive into the text and see kind of where all these ideas are coming from. Um, first, we'll look at this through three particular ideas. First, we'll talk about the surprisingly powerful context of Pentecost. That's what happens in Acts chapter 2. We call it Pentecost. Now, this is going to seem a little bit bizarre, but of the entire passage, verse 1 was the most challenging to me this past week. Um, I'll read it for you. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were together in one place. Anybody's life changed by reading that? Like, oh man, that's so good. All right, so let me explain to you why I think this is, this is so unbelievably powerful. Here's the context of what's going on here. Now, at this point, the Christian faith totals around 120 men and women. So about the number of people who are in this room. And the, um, all these people are praying, asking God, give us your spirit, give us your spirit, give us your spirit, so you can do the very thing. Okay, God the Father, give us God the Spirit, so that we can do the thing that God the Son just told us to do in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that we would make disciples to the very ends of the 
earth. Now, we find that all of this is happening within the context of a major Jewish holiday called Pentecost. Now, let me give you a little bit of background about Jewish culture in this day, because this probably doesn't strike you as significant. If you were Jewish and devout in this day and took following the Old Testament law really seriously, there were three major festivals that everything stopped for, like everything stopped for, and you would even um, make pilgrimage with your neighbors to Jerusalem to, to celebrate. And what you were doing as you made pilgrimage is you were remembering the past faithfulness of God and thanking him for it, and you were asking him in the future, hey, what you did in the past would you continue to do in our life, in the present, and into the future as well. Now, this stemmed from, in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 16 gave this command, Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord, your God, at the place that he will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was what you might have heard called Passover. This remembers the saving hand of God the Father uh, through uh, the Exodus and the liberation of his people from slavery in Egypt. Um, the Feast of Weeks, that's what we're seeing celebrated here in Acts chapter 2. Uh, we call this Pentecost. That's a Greek term that means 50th. And it was called that because it remembered 50 days following the Passover, the um, Old Testament people of God gathered together at the base of Mount Sinai and God gave them the law. And then finally, the Feast of Booths was the last of the festival. It happened in the late fall or autumn, just as grapes and olives were being harvested and remembered the wilderness journey from Egypt to Canaan, as well as was a time to thank God for his provision of food over the past year and ask him to provide it in the future. Everybody see why this is so life-changing? No, of course not. Okay, so it was a trick question. So if you were a devout Jew in this day, three times a year for an extended period of time, you would pause both to thank God for what he's done and to ask him to continue to show that favor in the future. And you would actually make pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate with fellow Jews. Now, what is the big deal um, about this. Well, stop for a second and consider how beautifully, bizarrely different this culture is from our own. Like, think, for example, if we just stopped and we said, hey, our church policy now is for three extended periods of time, every single year, we're going to make pilgrimage to this portion of California or something like that. You would be like, I don't have time for that. I don't have vacation. I do have vacation, but my boss makes me feel bad for using my vacation, even though it's the policy that I can have vacation. Um, and I use my vacation to ski. I use my vacation to go to different places. I'm, I'm not like in the whole pilgrimage thing. That's what weird people did a long time ago. Um, we do not do that anymore. And, and here, I mean, this is a counterculture, right? Here are these people. And I'm not, I'm not saying we should be exactly the same. I'm not advocating for a theocracy. I'm just saying, isn't it interesting? These people saw devotion, that is thanking God for what he's done, remembering his past faithfulness, and clamoring for that faithfulness to continue into the present. That is, God, your, fast fa your past faithfulness is your down payment, your promise for future provision. Would you extend to us that same saving grace in our day for three times a year? And it would be more than that, but at least three times a year to stop everything. And like, we thank you and we ask of you. We thank of you and we ask of you. We thank you and we ask of you again and again and again and again. And we're this culture, like, no margin, no space, and even like any margin that we have, like even if you do have like a little bit of margin, even the way we talk to one another, how are you doing? I'm tired and I'm busy, right? That's just like, if we're honest, that's what we feel. I'm tired and I'm busy. I'm tired and I'm busy. No margin whatsoever. And when we do, by God's grace, get the little gifts of margin, what do we do? We fill it with distraction, don't we? Like we are the culture where sitting at the red light without checking your phone makes you very different from your peers, 
like we're the culture that like if you go to the bathroom without your phone, um, you are very different than your peers. And um, you know, it's like if you went into a coffee shop this week and somebody was sitting there alone and they weren't looking at their phone, like if they were just staring off into the distance, a deep in thought, you probably wouldn't admire them, right? You probably wouldn't be like, you know what? They're probably thinking about deep matters of the soul. What would you be like? You'd be like, that's weird. That makes me feel uncomfortable. Why is that weirdo doing that? What is he plotting to do, right? That's what you, because like, like we are this culture, no margin, and the little margin that we have is filled with distraction. And here's the thing that really struck me. Here's why I felt like this was so challenging me this past week, is here's, here's the heart of it is that I feel like what we want a lot of times are these Acts 2-esque experiences without Acts 2 devotion or dedication, right? So it's like we want, like, God, turn the world upside down, change my life, change my marriage, fix my kids, fix that problem. And it's like we want all of the fruits of the miraculous, but we don't want, like, the thousand years. You understand that's what they were doing for like a thousand years since this command was given in Deuteronomy 16. And it was probably more than that, like probably 1,200-ish years. For a thousand years, three times a year, devotion, dedication, pilgrimage, we thank you for what you've done. Would you do it in the future? We thank you for what you've done. We'll do it. Would you do it in the future? And, uh, and then God answers that prayer, like after millennia, after millennia of asking this prayer. And for us, we're the culture where it's like, we don't pray. I'm not trying to make you like feel guilty about this. I'm just trying to say, can we think a little bit objectively? Like, we don't pray, or if we do pray, it's like in between episodes of whatever we're binging on Netflix, and it's like, okay, I will pray as the great British Bake Off or whatever you might be watching right now is like loading, right? It's like from zero to 100%, I will give my thought and my heart to the Lord. Uh, but as soon as I think it hits 100%, Amen. We're done. What are they going to make? I've never seen it before, but I, I'm sure it's lovely. You know, I'm sure it's binge-worthy. But it's like, but that's kind of the way we are. We have, it's like, we're just going to, and then we're like, God doesn't answer our prayer. And we're like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's why it's like, we need this beautifully bizarre countercultural posture of the context in which Pentecost was set, which against the backdrop of the miraculous and God turning the world upside down, where all of these people for a thousand years, we thank you for what you've done. Would you continue to do in the future? We thank you for what you've done. Would you continue to do it in the future? What would it look like? What would it look like in your life to not fill every little bit of margin with distraction? Here's some things I even thought about in my own life. Um, I wrote a couple things about my, just about like, what does it look like for us to be different? In a culture that if you just go with the flow, you're not going to end up in a healthy place. I would just say like, in an age of distraction, we can create a counterculture by being present. Because it's where God's people are present that the presence of God is truly experienced and enjoyed. That's what you're seeing in Acts chapter 2. Or to put it another way, in an age of instant gratification, one of the most beautiful ways you and I can be countercultural is by thinking long about the promises of God and regularly labor, laboring towards and claiming them to be experienced in our day. And we can be, you know, distracted and be like, God just doesn't work that way. He doesn't work that way. He works this way we see in Acts 2. A thousand years of devotion. And he turns the world upside down. Now, how does this happen? How does this happen? Well, look at look with me at verse 2, where we see God's spirit start to indwell his people. Verse 2 says this. <clears throat> and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So 
What Luke does, Luke's the author of this, he uses two different images to describe this shift in history from God reigning and ruling over people, God being kind of this idea, to God actually being personal experience um, in dwelling his people. Now, both images are not very comforting on the surface. One of a rushing wind, one of fire. Neither of us are like, or not, for neither of those are we like, Oh, that's super uh, encouraging. So let's, uh, let's go ahead and dive into kind of what they mean. Now, with the rushing wind, it was funny. I was writing a sermon on the plane as a rushing wind was like threatening to take my life. Uh, and I was like, this is not a comforting image. And, and really, you can't make this stuff up. I've shared this on planes. I feel like I have the deepest intimacy with God because it's like, I could see you at any moment, Lord. Um, and so, so I'm like writing this. And so... Like, I think when we hear rushing wind, that's where a lot of times our minds go. It's like a plane struggling to land. It's like a tornado tearing up eastern Colorado or Kansas. That's not really the image that's supposed to come to mind here. In fact, scholars have studied this closely. Notice the word choice that Luke uses is meant to immediately con- If you knew the Old Testament, you would immediately be like, that sounds really familiar. And it would stem all the way back to the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. It would describe how God made the world. Now, the phrasing of the rushing wind conjures up images of Genesis 2, verse 7, when the text says this. It'll be up here. The Lord, God, formed the man of dust from the ground. And look at this. Look at this phrase right here. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. You see that there? So, like, if you knew the Old Testament really well, and then you got to Acts chapter 2 and read this, you would be like, that sounds really familiar. It reminds me of when God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So, what commentators note is how Luke is communicating that this is something more than just, like, a tornado, but, and this is highly mysterious, I understand this, but... The very breath of God, the same breath that gave our first parents their existence and the consequent intimacy and relationship they enjoyed with God in the garden. That that, whatever that was, has re-entered into the story of humanity uh, in a way that's been unparalleled since the fall happened in the garden, okay? So you have a rushing wind, and then secondly, tongues of fire. It says that divided tongues as of fire appear to them and rested on each one of them. Now, I understand it's like negative 30 degree wind chill out there. So you're like, fire is actually a very comforting image. But notice what it says. Not just that fire appeared, but fire rested on them. None of you, regardless of how cold you are, like, I would really love to have some fire rest on me. So why is this, why is this actually a really beautiful image? Well, again, this is where if you had read the Old Testament a lot, and that's what these people had been doing for years. Like all they had were the Old Testament. They would have called it the Hebrew Bible. Like they would have been reading this and reading this and reading this. They would have been like, oh my gosh, we understand what's happening. Because in the Old Testament, following the fall, when there's separation between God and people, the most frequent way that God shows up to his people is through the image of fire. I'll just give you a few examples. Genesis 15, for example, God appears to Abraham as a burning torch. Exodus 3, God appears to Moses as a burning bush. Exodus 13, the Lord appears to his people as a pillar of fire to guide them. Deuteronomy 4, the Lord is described as being a consuming fire. And here we are in Acts chapter 2, fire appears to them again, but does something different than just appear um, look, at, look at that phrase again. It's going to seem like a subtle difference, but it's actually like makes all the difference in the world. Divided tongues as of fire appear to them. Now, if you'd read the Old Testament, you would have been like, okay, that happens. Here's all these different ways that it happens. 
fire appeared to them, but then notice this, and rested. Well, somebody say rested with me. And rested on each one of them. It seems like the smallest difference where everything has changed, where God has gone from merely kind of being a concept for people and even just reigning and ruling over people to actually being in the room with people and resting on each one of them. It's this moment in history where it seems like nothing's changed, but everything has changed. The the image that came to my mind is, okay, so you could, after hearing the story of me doing whatever it takes to get back from East Tennessee, you could be like, well, I don't understand what the big rush was. And I would say, say like, well, it's because like I told my girls that on Monday when they wake up, dad would be home. And you could be like, well, you know what? Like you're just as much their dad on the East Coast as you are here in Colorado. And even we have these technological innovations of uh, things like FaceTime. So like when they run in the, 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 the door and you're not there and they're like, oh, dad's not home. Uh, your wife can pull out FaceTime and be like, no, here he is. And uh, you can FaceTime. And it's like, it's basically the same thing. Now, in some ways, it's the same thing, right? Like positionally, I am still my girl's dad's regardless of our geographic locations. But experientially, what's the difference between FaceTime and actually being in the room with somebody? It's everything, isn't it? It's everything. Like Apple shows all these ads where it's like, it's basically the same thing. We're like, no, it's completely different. It's completely different, especially when your kids are little. It's completely different, like seeing dad on FaceTime and being able to like tackle him and wake him up and him pretend to be happy about it. I was later, but in the moment I was like, oh Lord. Uh, So, right, that's what's happening. It's like positionally in the story of God's relationship with his people, it seems like nothing has changed, right? Like he's still God, he still uh, reigns and rules over them, but experientially everything has changed where God is actually now in the room. And this is where the illustration breaks down. God is not just in the room, but he is resting on and indwelling his people. Like, what does that mean? What did it mean to be human before Acts chapter two? I don't know. I don't know what it was like. Like we're on this side of it. Thanks, thanks be to him. But, but it's like, but God is not just a concept. It's like we've been talking about this here. Like we don't want to just have concepts about God. We want to know God. We want to understand that Christianity is an invitation into a relationship of a daily enjoyment and experience of the presence of God. And we're seeing that Acts 2 is the pivot point of history where all of a sudden that's possible. He's not just, in, he's not just out there. He's not just reigning over people. He's in the room and dwelling, resting on every single one of them. I heard one commentator say this this past week. He said, um, in the Old Testament, uh, Moses would experience and see a burning bush. At Pentecost, every believer would be transformed into a burning bush. The Spirit of God would indwell us. Three, the work of restoration begins. The work of restoration begins. So what do we say? The Spirit of God indwelling the people of God to empower them towards the work of the restoration promised by God. Now, uh, verse 5 says this. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Now, why? Because it was Pentecost, right? Everybody's made pilgrimage to be in this city. Verse 6, and at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Now, you're supposed to laugh at that um, because it's throwing major shade if you're from Galilee. I know there's probably nobody from Galilee here, but in the first century, Galilee was sort of like viewed through the same cultural lens as we view like backwoods West Virginia. Now, I'm not saying it's a fair stereotype. I'm just saying that like Galileans were looked at as being ignorant, 
uneducated. And so think about this, right? Like if you have the stereotype of like backwoods West Virginians, uh, West Virginians not being uh, particularly intelligent, like imagine stumbling into like a backwoods West Virginia bar and you see all these people having a conversation and they're like 15 different languages going like between each other at the exact same time. You probably would be like, that was not what I was expecting. I was expecting it like Harvard where like people just learn other languages for fun, not like backwoods West Virginia bar. That's basically why they're like, why are these people Galileans doing this? Um, it's like major shit uh, if you're from Galilee. Like, not only do we hear all these different languages, but these are kind of some ignorant people. That's why they say in verse 8, how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Now, verses 9 through 11, they list off 15 different regions of the world and languages represented that are present. All hearing the gospel proclaims in their own language, and they don't really know what to do with it. And there's two different ways that they respond. Because all were amazed and perplexed. Now, here's what some did. Some said to one another, what does this mean? So some people just from the very beginning were like, I don't know what this means. Could you help make sense of this for me? Others, verse 13, said they are filled with new wine, which they're basically saying like they're just being crazy, they're drunk. So some saying, what does this mean? We'll see that question answered next week. Others saying um, they're just drunk. This is the dumbest thing ever. Now, <laughs> what's happening? what's happening here? Okay. Let's, let's go from probably least likely to most likely. Now, there's like a lot of different things, but I'm just giving you three kind of mainstream things. What's probably not happening is the same phenomenon in Acts chapter 2 that Paul describes as, of tongues in uh, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Uh, I think pretty much every scholar, when you study the details, there's two different phenomena that are being described. Happy to talk about it later, but that's all I'll say about that. What probably is happening is God is giving a glimpse of the reversal of Babel to give a cosmic glimpse into how he is now restoring the world to put it back together in the way that it's meant to be. So Genesis chapter 11, the nations come to Babel to overthrow the authority of God. God scatters them. All these different languages emerge. Acts chapter 2, the nations come to Jerusalem. They all hear the gospel in their own language. Cosmic restoration taking place right there. What's definitely happening, okay, here's what's definitely happening. What's definitely happening is the Spirit of God is doing the very thing that he promised to do, right? So, like, what just happened leading up to this is Jesus saying, you're powerless, you're finite, you're limited to do the very thing that I'm calling you to do, but Acts 1-8, you will receive power when the Spirit comes in and dwells you for you to make disciples of all nations. Acts 1-8, you'll receive power to make disciples of all nations. Acts chapter 2, verse 8, all the nations are like, how are we hearing the gospel? All in our own language. The Spirit of God is indwelling the people of God to co-labor alongside the work of God to restore the world back together in the way that it was meant to be. And I think this, when you start to wrap your mind around this, this is where understanding the work of the Spirit shifts from being this like bizarre and tangible, I can't really wrap my mind around this, to actually very beautiful and hopeful and tangible in our lives. Because here's the thing, here's, here's where we start to kind of have some case studies to have this, wrap your, your mind around this. Like, I don't know if anybody in here like has anybody in your sphere of influence you would really love to see, like, no love and follow Jesus. Not because you're, like, this weird religious person who's trying to impose your beliefs onto other people, but because, like, you're seeing people make self-destructive decisions, and you care for them, and you love them, and you want them to know the value and the dignity and the worth in which God fearfully and wonderfully made them. 
I don't know if you have anybody like that in your life. Like, that's a work of restoration. That's a work of restoration and desiring to have that person restored back into right relationship with God. And it feels daunting. It feels daunting on your own to figure out how do I, like, bring up the religion thing without making things weird? How do I, you know, how do I say the perfect thing? What if they ask me about, like, science in the Bible? And what if I don't have a PhD in astrophysics? What if I don't give the perfect answer? Like, it is a daunting thing. If you have somebody in your life, you want to have no love and follow Jesus for their joy to feel this pressure of, okay, I got to say the perfect thing and have the perfect answers ready so that their life is forever transformed for all of eternity. But if that's not it, if the Spirit of God is empowering you, the third person of the triune Godhead is empowering you and is at work in that person's life as well, well, there's this great confidence that I don't have to be perfect. I just need to be faithful and I can step out in faith and I can just sort of put the thing out there and help them know, like, I love you and I care about you. I don't know if you're here and you, like, have something in your life you want to be victorious over. I'm talking, like, repetitive, chronic, self-destructive decision-making that hurts you and the people around you. And you're like, why can I not stop this? Right? It's like, we, we're like not nearly as rational as we think we are as human beings, are we? Um, like, when we have things we don't want to do, like, it's like, oh gosh, like, I know it's bad for me. I know it hurts the people around me. And yet, I keep making this mistake again and again and again and again. That's chronic sin in your life. That's yearning for the work of restoration. And yeah, if you feel like in isolation, you have to kind of read the right books, watch the right TED Talks, willpower your way to be victorious, that's a really daunting thing. But if the Spirit of God loves empowering the people of God for the work of restoration, well, as Paul says in Romans 8, if the same Spirit who resurrected Jesus from the dead indwells you as well, he can be victorious of whatever sin is snaring you also. Are you passionate about justice? Are you passionate about inequality? Well, what you're going to see in the following of Acts is tons of followers of Jesus who are engaging almost exclusively urban centers where injustice reigns supreme and they step in and they fight back and they actually change the entire course in which cultures and urban centers are going. In isolation, things like you see in Acts, for example, uh, uh, women liberated from slavery, marginalized people treated as equals. I could go on and on and on. On your own, if you feel like your only weapons are like willpower and your social media account, that's daunting, right? Like to be like, I'm going to throw out a cry into the, 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 the endless abyss of Facebook. That'll change this issue. Or you could believe that the Spirit of God indwells the people of God to take up the work of the restoration of God. And when your heart breaks for the things that break God's heart as well, and you take action, well, the Spirit of God loves through you to do abundantly more than you could ever ask or imagine, as Paul would promise in the book of Ephesians. Look, I know this is a lot. I know it's, a lot of this is just what the remainder of the book of Acts is. So let me give you two particular action steps that might help you um, in the coming weeks to take some of these really big ideas and give, make them really, really practical. So two. The first would be, if you're a follower of Jesus and you really want to carve out some margin in your life, I would just love to challenge you this particular week um, to really have a plan to say, hey, where is some space where I have margin to thank God and to ask God? to thank or to remember who he is and to thank him for what it is that he's done. Now, what I'm anticipating is that for some of you, you're like, I've tried to do that and I'm really bad at that. And a lot of times what happens is we are like, well, try harder on your own. And you're like, but I'm bad on my own. Okay. So what we're doing is we're creating some intentional space leading up to Easter that if you want help in doing this, getting with some other people, there's going to be three spaces every single week that we as a church will create space for this. Right here, we'll have three prayer rhythms. This will be from this Wednesday 
leading up to Easter. So Sundays before our gatherings, this has been happening for years, but we have people pray at 8.15 and 4.30. At 8.15 and 4.30, which is going to the back corner right there. And then we're adding a lunchtime prayer hour as well at 12 p.m. So if you're the type of person that has a lunch hour and you work in the city, if you're the person who has a lunch hour but your boss doesn't care, you know, they're flexible about what they mean by hour. They mean like hours. Um, you can make your commute here and be here. Um, you stay at home with your kids, whatever it is. We, I know this doesn't work for everybody, but if you want to be here and pray with us, we'll be here every Wednesday throughout the course of um, Ash Wednesday up to Easter. It starts this Wednesday, and we would love to have you join us with that. We just hope that helps propel you to have a greater life of devotion on your own life uh, in your own rhythms as well. Secondly, if you're here and you're exploring Christianity, which really glad you're here. Um, we have a lot of people that like this. It's one of the things about our church in this really unlikely place is a lot of people are trying to figure out what is it that they believe about who God is. And I have a lot of empathy about that because I didn't really grow up around this stuff and it wasn't until I was 18 I started exploring it. So I know it's a little bit weird to be like an adult and be like, I'm trying to figure out what it is that I really believe. I would just say one of the things I would maybe challenge you with is I think a lot of times in Denver, in Denver the challenge is, this seems like it shouldn't be a challenge, but the challenge is like 20 good things to do on a weekend, right? And so we try to sort of fit in eternal matters of the soul in between like skiing and drinking. And then we're like, I don't understand why nothing's changing. I don't understand why this doesn't make sense. It's like, well, I just think in our lives, we come to a place where we have to make the most important things the most important things. And so here's the thing. Starting this Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. That is when the church historically um, sort of sets apart time for unique devotion to remember Jesus' unique devotion of getting ready to go to the cross. Now, what I would love to challenge you to do, there are six Sundays that are leading up to Easter Sunday. And I would love to challenge you to do something really bizarre in Denver. One, to commit. I know we're the city where the one thing that we're committed to is not being committed to anything. To commit to being here to hopefully all those services, if not as many of them as possible, and to have just this experiment in your life of making the most important things the most important things. And I think the Lord will really honor that. I think he'll really meet you. And it's, it's just, this is the type of stuff that happens in people's lives when they set apart time of saying, we thank you and we ask you. We thank you, we ask you. And some of you are trying to figure out, what do I thank God for in the first place? Um, some of you are trying to figure out, what do I ask you to do? What, what, how do I line up my life with his? So that's all I want to say. I, I try to have something compelling to say after that, but that's all I have to say. So uh, <laughs> thanks again for being here. I really appreciate it. I know it's super cold out here. I, I'm not being facetious. Like, I really mean it. I really appreciate you being here. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have some time to respond and to really think about these things. This is margin. This is space where it's like, okay, we're just carving out time to sing, to think deeply about our lives, about what's most important, to pray with people around us. There's probably no other rhythm in your life where you're like, yeah, this just spontaneously happens at my place of work, unless you work at like a Christian bookstore or something like that. But it's like, I don't think any of you do. So like, this is a gift to you. We're not just ending with music um, because it's like, we can't think of something else to end with. We're carving out margin to do the very thing we talked about, where the people of God gather together to sing, to worship, to pray, to think deeply about life and to think about kind of what is the trajectory that I'm on. So let's pray to that end. Father, we're thankful for you. We love you. And uh, we're just thankful for the men and women who are here and their, their faithful presence. And I pray that you would meet them. I pray that um, we would taste and see some glimpse of every believer being a burning bush, um, that the Spirit of God, he would indwell us um, to empower us 
to put our lives back together and to put the world around us back together in the way that it was meant to be. Thank you for inviting us into your great mission. Thank you for loving us and saving us. And I pray that we would now respond uh, thoughtfully and deeply. Um, We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.